This is Sound Education in Law, a podcast where we talk to the experts on the latest law topics you need to know about. I'm your host, Susanna Lobez, and in today's episode, we're going to take a look at partnership disputes with James Dapache, corporate and commercial litigator and special counsel at Chamberlain's Law Firm in Sydney. James, welcome back to Sound Education. Thanks so much for joining us. Many thanks for having me, Susanna. I'm looking forward to a chat today. Now, first, a partnership is a group of individuals carrying on a business together for profit, which seems ideal. What could possibly go wrong? But <laughs> things do go wrong. Why do yes. things go wrong so often, James? Yes, uh, I suppose this is almost a philosophical question, isn't it? If we, uh, if we get a group of people um, into a room to try to do something together, uh, <laughs> Success is not necessarily guaranteed and the the different approaches that different people might want to adopt can come to a head. And so many partnerships are very successful and there are some where those personalities and different priorities and different approaches can cause real, real problems. The human condition, some might say. Yeah, philosophical indeed. How important is it that advisors and the individual partners understand the law of partnership? I say very important. There are obligations that arise in relation to the law of partnership that are quite peculiar and fiddly. And I should also say at the moment, we won't be covering tax issues today. There are also some tax considerations that are worth bearing in mind. But the way that one partner can be liable for the actions of another, uh, the way that partnership assets can be treated separately to different kinds of assets, and the way that liability can arise are all reasons that we as advisors to partners and indeed our clients as partners need to understand their obligations and need to understand those risks. So back to basics, when generally does a partnership exist under the state and territory partnership legislation, James? Well, the existence of a partnership is determined generally speaking, by legislation, although there's some common law about it. Um, The most fundamental point to start with is that a written agreement is not necessary. And so what we then dive into is the murky world of when will the court form a view about a partnership existing? And what we often find under the relevant legislation, which is often state-based, is that we'll have a negative definition. uh, And so what the legislation, to take one example, in New South Wales says is that co-ownership of land, of real property, is not itself evidence of partnership or that taking a share in a business's profits is prima facie evidence of partnership but is not conclusive. And so what we often find is that a court will go through and take a look at what the enterprise is actually doing and then form its view about whether a partnership exists based on that and using the ordinary principles of contractual interpretation. So being guided by various court decisions to supplement the legislation, what can we say are the key features of a partnership, James? We can say there are five, and then we can probably whisper that there are only three uh, because um, three of them are very similar. Um, Speaking broadly, um, the first is mutual agency. So the act of one partner, if you and I are in partnership, Susanna, bind the others. So if you take a step as a partner, I am bound by that step you take. The next three features are sort of corollaries of each other. There is participation in profits. 
So partners will share in the profits of a partnership. And there's an important distinction between profits and mere returns. Sharing in the return um, of a business, you know, the sale price of a widget is one thing, but sharing in the profits of an enterprise is another. And the sharing in those profits is fundamental to partnership. The corollary of that is that the sharing of losses, if any, is fundamental to partnership. And the third corollary feature there is that there is common capital. So the partnership itself is the owner of the capital of the enterprise. It is property of the firm. And then the final key feature of partnership is the unassignability of that relationship. So, Susanna, if you and I are in partnership, your rights and obligations pursuant to our partnership are not something you can go and assign. As, as we'll come to later, the issue of dissolution will rear its head if we need to talk about how to restructure our relationship. Now, you mentioned, James, some whispered key features. What are the other features of partnership that are important to keep in mind when advising on or whether when forming a partnership? The question of authority is one that looms. So in corporations law, we talk about when is a person authorised to go out into the marketplace and bind the company? Um, Similarly, we need to be wary in relation to the law of partnerships. When is a partner authorised to go and bind the partnership? Now, as we mentioned earlier, the act of one partner binds the others. And that is true unless that partner has no authority and the person who that partner is dealing with is aware that partner has no authority. So it's quite a strict test on that authorization point. Um, and further sub-key features uh, relate to the holding out of partners. So if you are in the marketplace dealing with a person who holds themselves out as a partner in a partnership, liability can arise for any credit given on the base of that holding out. And then without evidence of a contrary intention, if there's property purchased with partnership money, prima facie, that property purchased with partnership money becomes property of the partnership. And then there are a few other features worth bearing in mind, one of which is that with a few exceptions, the size of a partnership is limited to 20 partners. Now, I guess uh, what you hinted at before becomes relevant. When can a partnership be dissolved? There's a glib answer that is essentially whenever the partners want. (laughs) Um, But if we're speaking technically, um, sometimes there can be a fixed term for the partnership. So uh, you and I might enter into partnership today and say that partnership will expire on uh, 30 June 2024 or whenever it might be. Um, There are examples of single venture partnerships that are sort of a joint venture-flavoured arrangement whereby partners might enter into a partnership agreement for the purpose of most often developing some land and uh, preparing it for sale. But aside from that, if one partner gives notice of their intention to dissolve the partnership, that notice can be effective and indeed cause dissolution. So it's a very low threshold. If you and I are in partnership and I let you know that the time has come to dissolve the partnership, that is, by and large, going to be effective. Now, a partnership may, of course, also be dissolved by order of the court. So, James, when will the court accept or even order 
that a partnership should be dissolved. There are a number of circumstances where the court's going to look at dissolving a partnership. And what I should have mentioned earlier um, is that a partnership's going to be dissolved on the death or bankruptcy of any partner. Now, alongside death and bankruptcy, uh, we have the position where the court may dissolve a partnership if a partner's been declared to be of unsound mind and incapable of managing their affairs, uh, if a partner is incapable of performing part of the partnership contract, if they've engaged in conduct calculated to prejudicially affect the firm, and commercially speaking, when the partnership business can only be carried on at a loss, or the Corporate or Corporations Act test that some of us will be familiar with, if the court forms the view and finds that it is just and equitable that the partnership ought to be dissolved, it will be so. And if I can speak a little frankly, if the parties desire that the partnership be dissolved, it's highly likely that dissolution will take place. Well, let's turn to some of the court decisions concerning partnership disputes. First up, we have the Victorian Supreme Court decision in Chicago and Zvia. What were the main features of the partnership structure in this case, James? Um, this partnership structure is one that will be reasonably familiar to those of us who have spent some time thinking about the way professional services firms arrange themselves. So, in short, we have a deed. And the deed is between various companies, and each of those companies is the trustee of a trust, and among the beneficiaries of each trust is a capital P principal. And that capital P principal in respect of each trust is held out by the accounting firm as a partner or a director of the accounting firm. And so they, which is to say the natural person beneficiaries of each trust, are held out as principals, but on paper, the only parties to the deed are the trustees of each of these principals' various trusts. And how did the partnership dispute arise in this case? It's an interesting one um, because what we have is we have one of the principals performing work that is on its face consistent with his duties as uh, someone who is part of the partnership, which is uh, he goes out, he becomes a director of one of the firm's clients, and he performs a number of services in his role as director. Now, using an entity under that natural person's control, that director also makes an investment in the client company, and as a result of that investment, yields a profit over $11 million. Now, later, another related entity of this natural person defendant receives a little over $4.8 million as a gratuitous gift. Now, interestingly, the parties that received these monies or got the yield on their investment were not closely related to the corporate trustee partner, which is to say the company referred to in the partnership deed. They were parties related to this natural person defendant who had gone off and cause these benefits to be directed to entities related to him. Now, in short, the way that the dispute arose was that the corporate partners, each of the trustees of these trusts, sued not only the corporate partner defendant, but also sued the natural person defendant and said to the natural person defendant, you are a partner in this partnership, and so you are someone who owes us duties as a partner, and so you 
breached your fiduciary duties. That is the argument that the other corporate partners made in bringing the application. Well, the court found that the defendants had indeed breached their fiduciary duties and were obliged to account. Why did they find that? Yeah, this is a good question, and it was quite fiddly for the court. And what the court did was just apply basic tenets of construction to the deed. Um, And so the court looked very, very closely at it, noted what we've now all just learned, that the only parties are each of these corporate trustees. But as the court dived through the document, um, the term partner or partners obviously referred to those principles, obviously referred to those natural persons. And if they were not partners, um, the deed would be rendered a bit of a nonsense because there were terms relating to bankruptcy, to death, to illness and to age. And as we all know, corporations cannot die, cannot become bankrupt, cannot become ill and cannot become uh, old in the way that we can. (laughs) And so um, for terms like that to be included in the deed, um, the court found that it would lack commercial utility if the natural person principles were not also found to owe partnership obligations to the other partners. And so what the court found was that indeed our natural person defendant did owe those obligations and so was obliged to account for those very significant benefits, totaling over $15 million, that he and indeed his related entities, speaking more accurately, enjoyed. One example of the issues that can arise after a court has decided to dissolve a partnership is the Supreme Court of New South Wales decision in Murray and Ferros. Now, this case involved a pharmacy business. How was the business structured, uh, James? Yeah, it's it's an interesting one. Um, And it is the sort of structure that might appear complex over time, but um, is reasonably simple once we switch our brains on, which often takes me longer than most. But in essence, we're dealing with a group of six pharmacy businesses Three of those businesses are operated by three natural person pharmacists in partnership. The fourth business is operated by those three natural persons and one other person in partnership. And the remaining two pharmacies are operated by companies whose shareholders are companies controlled by those first three pharmacists. And while that is the sort of relationship that leads us to uh, pull out a piece of paper and start drawing diagrams. Um, The actual operation of the group was performed by way of management board, making decisions for the entirety of the group. And for a time, that management structure proceeded appropriately. Well, then the court agreed that the business should be wound up eventually. Why was that? Yes. Um, you're right, Susanna. So for a time, things went well, and then things stopped going well. Um, there were long-standing disputes between uh, the various entities in the group regarding the management of the business, and there were genuine negotiations, but they didn't lead to a final agreement. There's also a financier looming in the background with the potential to call in some loans, and so this appeared as an imminent threat. What the court found was that it was satisfied that all six of the businesses ought to be wound up on a just and equitable basis. And when I say businesses, of course, I'm speaking loosely. So to the extent that each of those businesses was a partnership, that's four of them, the court found that they ought to be wound up 
I, I withdraw the word wound up. I meant to say dissolved. Susanna, of course, you and I are very good partnership lawyers, meant to say. Uh, and in respect of the two companies, the corporate businesses, um, that they ought to be wound up as well. Well, the question then became the choice of insolvency practitioners and the liability for costs of the dissolution. How did the court resolve these issues, James? Yeah, it's a good question um, because the idea of competing insolvency practitioners is one that pops up a lot. Uh, Frankly, in this country, we have a lot of excellent and highly qualified people who can do work as receivers and work as liquidators. And so the court had to really drill into the finer points of the competing suggestions made by the various parties. Um, In a finely balanced decision, what the court said was, look, we're going to bring in the IPs, the insolvency practitioners who have experience dealing with pharmacies, and they went ahead and did that. In relation to costs, what was found was that the cost of the application to wind up the various businesses were not costs that ought to be borne by the plaintiffs themselves. They were costs that ought to be borne by the partnership because absent a good reason for any order, Costs necessary for dissolving a partnership are costs of the partnership. And so to the extent the costs related to those partnership dissolutions, they were borne by the partnerships. Liability for the costs of the dissolution of the partnership was also a major issue in the New South Wales Supreme Court decision in Slim and Cabra. This was a single venture partnership, which you mentioned earlier. What Mm. was the background to the costs dispute here, James? Yeah, this was a challenging one. This was a single venture partnership in relation to the development of some land, um, which eventually fell over, and there were significant costs incurred. And in essence, our plaintiff partners commenced proceedings, and they were ventilating claims in relation to money they sought uh, from the partnership, and they were seeking essentially an adjustment of entitlements. Now, um, the proceedings were referred off to a referee and uh, the referee came back with a report allocating that Party X had to be responsible for cost A, B and C, and Party Y had to be responsible for cost D, E and F. And a subsequent argument arose that the court then had to go on and deal with in determining liability for costs. And how did the court determine liability for the costs? This is an interesting one because... The usual position, as we learned earlier, is that costs necessary for the dissolution of a partnership should be paid from the partnership. And so on one view, what we say, if we are arguing to the plaintiffs, is, hey, these costs are partnership dissolution costs, and so should be borne by the partnership. What the defendant said is, no, the reason these proceedings were commenced was for you to make various claims. And so... Uh, You failed in making those claims because the referee basically found in our favour, so you were unsuccessful, and so you should have to bear the costs. Now, what the court found was no. The court said that all these arguments about the various little rats and mice issues about costs were essentially symptoms of a fundamental argument about what the partnership was, and because the dispute was about the fundamental nature of the partnership, the legal costs relating to it ought to be borne by the partnership. And so the plaintiffs had their costs paid from the partnership. Well, just for a moment, James, going back to the question of whether a partnership Mm. exists, 
The business structure, which was the subject of the Victorian of Appeal decision in Jafari and 23 developments, was also very complex. Tell us a bit about the background to this dispute. This is a crunchy one. Um, I'll use the words appellant and respondent quite loosely, but essentially we have an appellant who in about 2003, 2004, buys some land and by about 2008, 2009, is running out of money. And in about 2009, the appellant entered into an agreement with the respondent and the nature of that agreement is essentially look, I'll sell you this land and we'll go and develop it together. Now, before the appellant can sell this property, um, sadly, due to the appellant's financial position, um, a mortgagee comes in, takes possession of the land and sells it, and indeed sells the land to the respondent. So uh, we have the land in the hands of the respondent And we actually have the appellant hanging around and continuing to discuss the development with the respondent. So we have this complexity that it was always intended, or put another way, it may have been intended based on the 2009 agreement that the respondent become an owner of the land, but perhaps plan A was not available to the parties because the sale was made by the mortgagee in possession. What the appellant said was, hey, we're in partnership. This 2009 agreement is a partnership agreement. And so you have to come and account to me for all the profits made from this partnership. Now, of course, as you can imagine, the respondent was not too impressed with this claim and resisted it at the first instance. So one was arguing there was a partnership and one was arguing there wasn't a partnership. On what, <laughs> on what basis did the Court of Appeal rule that the structure was not a partnership? Yes, potato, potato. Um, The Court of Appeal went quite forensically through the agreement and noted that even though there were terms that we might think of as partnership-flavoured, such as the sharing of profits, which we know is a signifier of a partnership being in place, the Court of Appeal found there was no partnership. Um, Firstly, there was no express term that the respondent was going to own the property on behalf of the partner. There was no term in there saying the property was going to be a partnership asset. Um, There was no term dealing with one partner bearing liability for the act of another, that mutual agency, key point of partnership we spoke about earlier. And the earlier proposed agreements that had been exchanged between the parties used terms like partner and terms like partners. And the use of those terms that was reflected in earlier agreements didn't come to be reflected in the final agreement, making it fairly clear to the court that what was intended by the parties was not a partnership agreement at the time it was entered into in 2009. And so our poor old appellant also went down on appeal. So, James, what lessons can we learn from these cases as a partner or advisor to a partnership business? I despise a checklist, um, as most of us do, but there can be a little bit of a cascading number of steps we can go through. So the first thing we might do as advisors to partners is is have a think about whether the parties are indeed partners. Um, There may well be a written agreement there for you to take a look at. If there is, we then want to think about what our client is obliged to do and what rights our client might have. Um, If there's no partnership agreement or no agreement reflecting the position between the parties, this might be a good opportunity for commercial practitioners to draft one. 
um, because in the absence of any written agreement, um, the obligations are almost always better to be defined in writing than be to left open for argument later. And if there's no agreement that can be reached about uh, any potential dispute between the supported partners, then dissolution might be the option, whether pursuant to the agreement, which might deal with dissolution, or whether a general law. And then the final step, if none of those are possible, is to litigate. So as a litigator, James, what types of matters do you consider should be covered in any written partnership agreement about the structure and decision-making of the partnership? Yes. Speaking as a litigator, it's very easy to uh, throw stones from the outside at my commercial colleagues. So uh, all of these suggestions are made with the greatest of respect for the hard work done by those wonderful people. Um, A few suggestions I have um, are to think about the decision-making mechanisms that will be used in the management of the partnership, especially in case of a deadlock. Uh, We want to think about when capital is to be contributed by whom and what that capital will be. Because what we often see in some of these partnership disputes is that we might have one partner who is the money, speaking loosely, and we might have one partner who is contributing sweat equity, again, speaking loosely. And these things ought to be dealt with. We want to look at a decision-making and dispute resolution clause We want to look at incapacity, death, disability, and bankruptcy, these natural person risks that can pop up and put the future of the partnership at risk. We want to ensure that what happens on the occurrence of incapacity, death, disability, and bankruptcy is dealt with, and that can be done in the partnership agreement. Retirement, similarly. Um, If the partnership is to be single venture, this ought to be dealt with, and then among a whole host of other possible terms, buy, sell, and valuation provision. We want to make an exit from the partnership as clear and easy as possible because, as we learned earlier, if there's no way for the partners to escape the business uh, and if there's no way to, say, remove a non-performing partner, we want to have a mechanism in place someone to be paid out and to be shown the back door. So what matters need to be covered dealing with changes affecting the individuals making up the partnership? That's a good question and partly harks back to um, a comment I made earlier that in this agreement we want to make sure that we're dealing with these natural person risks. We want to be clear about what happens if a natural person partner is made bankrupt and becomes incapable or dies. And then in relation to corporate partners, we want to make sure those sort of insolvency events or those other corporate risks are dealt with as well. And on a slightly lighter note, um, there are some things that partnership agreements ought to at least consider in passing. If the partners are natural persons, issues like leave, issues like sabbaticals, issues like what we do after we've both been in partnership for 15 years and are exhausted ought to be accounted for in the partnership agreement as well. Any other issues that you think need to be considered, James, when drafting partnership agreements from a litigation perspective? I think so. Uh, We want to insert some sort of warranty or acknowledgement about who is and who is not the partner. So if we think back to our lesson in Chickabo, where all the parties were a bit confused as to whether it was the corporations or the natural persons or some of them or none of them, 
These are the sort of confusing matters that we can deal with in the partnership agreement. Similarly, matters like authority, who is authorised to go out and do stuff and what is the stuff they are authorised to go out and do, these are the things that ought to be dealt with in the partnership agreement. Strange issues like governing jurisdiction clauses as well ought to be covered because even though this is an issue that can be glossed over quite quickly, as I mentioned earlier, the law of partnership is quite jurisdiction-specific and so it would be, I say with respect, a bit of an oversight if the draftsperson's mind was not turned to which jurisdiction do we want to litigate in if we have to. And after today's discussion, James, what key red hand points would you like us to take away? I think the value of a partnership agreement is fundamental. If you find yourself advising a client who thinks they might be in partnership or you find yourself advising a client who is in a scenario that you suspect bears some of the indicators of partnership and you are not sure, then that is a really big window into uncertainty. And to the extent that we as a profession uh, sell services and sell outcomes, I think at our best we are selling certainty. And in the case of a partnership dispute, if we're able to say to our client, um, you have the rights A, B and C, and you have the obligations D, E, and F, then that is a good outcome. And I say with the greatest of respect that often it's a very good outcome if we're able to deliver it in the context of a bit of a dispute. Um, Despite the fact I'm a litigator and I do some partnership litigation and will always be available to go and litigate partnership disputes, I think it's almost 100% of the time a better result for clients if we're able to achieve a commercial outcome rather than have to drag them through years and years of commercial litigation. And question without notice, James, just within your practice, what are the percentages of people uh, who have partnership agreements in writing and who sort of drift along not sure if they're partners at all? Uh, I think I'd make up probably 75-25, Susanna. It's often funny and with the greatest of respect, it's often commercially unsophisticated clients we have come in and you need to unpack and sort of figure out what's been going on and whether you can trust the way the accountant has described the structure in the past or whether something else is going on. And so there will be some matters that are cut and dried and that'll be the majority of them. Here's the partnership agreement. Give me some advice. Yes. But there will be those, uh, a significant minority. I'm going to make up 25% that come in and we really need to have a head scratch about, all right, what are the features of this relationship? Um, Are we talking about a partnership here or are we talking about something else? So, Suzanne, I'm grateful for you making clear it was without notice. My answer without notice is I'll go with 75-25. Well, it seems like uh, a partner by any other name can still be a partner (laughs) and have have the obligations that go with it. So... So clearly, um, that 25% is probably the people who think a handshake is uh, the way to do a deal. <laughs> or, or indeed find themselves in a chickabo-type scenario where they might have thought that a related entity to them was a partner when, in fact, it turns out they may themselves be a partner. Those sort of fiddly issues can rear their heads as well. Well, James, thanks you very much indeed for joining us today. It's been a delight, Susanna. I really appreciate it. 
And you've been listening to Sound Education in Law. And you can check out our website, www.tved.net.au, for more content on major legal developments. I'm your host, Susanna Lopez. Look forward to speaking to you next time.